listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to Season 4 and the 93rd episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Building a better community is an important part of the role that Learning Teams Inc. plays to bring to those wanting to do safety differently. The notion of the Safety Differently book club was the idea of Jeffrey Liff at the Safety Differently forum. These book clubs have grown in popularity around the world. The Brisbane book club is an example of this with Stephen Harvey and Josh Bryant working hard to build that community with a twist of humour, light banter and holding a book club at a bar. On today's episode, we get to listen to the hosts of the Safe Differently Book Club interview Clyde Lloyd, the author of Next Generation Safety Leadership. So please sit back and enjoy this episode of the pod with Stephen Harvey, Josh Bryant and Clive Lloyd. Clive's got that amazing book, From Compliance to Care, number one bestseller on Amazon. Everywhere, I think, all over the planet, mate, right? Um, I th- I'm, I'm going to hazard a guess that I think basically everybody in this room has had a crack at it and read it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I okay. thought so. Yeah, it's one of those things. But everybody, Clive Lloyd. Hey. Do you know what? I wrote this question a few weeks ago and I listened to my first safety podcast in a while. And bloody Mary, Con- was it Mary? Oh, Mary Conquest yeah. said that. And I was like, oh, bugger. I was going to ask Clive that question, but I'm going to keep asking yeah. you anyway. Yeah. Mate, so basically, it was, I remember when we read your book in, in the beginning, you talked about, or it was Tim Diath that spoke about. Tim Diath. S- yeah, Tim Diath. Diath, right? <laughs> Safety is an industry in crisis. But your book's been around for a couple of years now. Mm. Just wondering if you. If you think that you've been around and travel a lot which i thought yeah okay so i won't answer for tim yeah, yeah but totally. I, I might give you a little bit of background on tim tim Darth. if you haven't come across tim uh, i was talking to him recently uh if you haven't seen his work hop on to that that um was it the slicing podcast yeah, yeah it's amazing yeah tim's on that it's a brilliant podcast and it just illustrates tim i think for who he is so i met him uh, 2012 uh at, at a conference now this is 2012 is just before Safety Differently kind of got heard of, right? And he was a guy who's come off the tools, gone through the ranks, just landed himself a gig, um, multi-billion dollar port expansion project. And he was a young fella. Um, That was pretty impressive. But already he's found his own way to do safety. And so we collaborated. I I think I've learned more from Tim than he's learned from me. But anyway. He went on to be head of safety at uh, Melbourne Airport, so he's in the high reliability space. His frustration, I think, why I asked him, by the way, to do that forward, was when I wrote the book, I was really mindful of who my audience was. I didn't want to write for commentators or academics, right? Bloody academics. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there's a lot of um, new view books out there written by academics, and when I read them, it sounds like they were written for academics. They're drier than a Qantas sandwich, you know, they're really dry stuff. Oh, you've had one. That's my (laughs) athletic (laughs) option. You've had one. Uh, 
Whereas Tim, uh, when, when I wrote it, I wanted to write for people doing the job, people like yourself, people like Tim. And I thought, when it comes to the forward, who then should write it? The best leader I've worked with in 20 years, Tim Darth. Um, again, he, he doesn't get out there much. He said he, he likes to stay in his lane, but really connect with him. He just knows so much stuff. So yeah, opening line. Yeah, no, yeah, was meant. Yeah, safety's an industry in crisis. Yeah, yeah, so, strong language. Yeah. Uh, again, I won't speak for Tim. I think all he means is no matter where he's gone, and done a brilliant job. Yeah. In whatever position he's been in, got really good results. Even if you want to look at numbers, um, his where he sees a crisis is this stubborn resistance to change. How the field of safety and even health and safety professionals seem to want to not let go of some things that are outdated, things like met certain metrics, the, the stick and carrot approach. That's his frustration. I think it's frustration more than a genuine crisis, for me at least. Yeah. But I share his frustration. Yeah, yeah, I think um, right? You know, there's a lot of evidence talking about some of the old stuff simply doesn't work, it gets in the way. Most people would understand that. His frustration is that, that people seem reluctant to change. I think though, as you read through the forward, it gets increasingly optimistic towards the end. And what he realises is, well, that's how it is. I can influence some mm. people. And he's great at that. Oh, that's a lovely sound. Uh, that's yeah, shut a, up, Tony. That, <laughs> that is such a lovely sound. You keep that going. It's going to soothe us all as we go through. And so, look, Tim influences you where he can, including regulators. He's pretty yeah. good at that too, yeah, in the high reliability space. Yeah. So I don't think it's a crisis, but anybody who's on LinkedIn a lot, and I reckon there's half the room, um, it doesn't, you, you put anything remotely um, current up there um, and you just get slammed. Uh, it's, it's clearly evident that there's still a lot of opposition to, to actually moving forward. Decades and decades and decades of yep. thinking, right? Yeah. Mate, what, what, what do you think makes a great safety leader? What sort of attributes do you think you need? What makes a great safety leader? I'm not sure I'd distinguish too much between a safety leader and a leader, first up. Mm -hmm. Maybe some specific knowledge in, in risk and so forth, but that's true of any leadership area. Given a few current or recent events, I'd say the key attribute of a safety leader seems to be a bloody heartbeat. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's just a couple of recent events. Uh, for me, it would be things, I'm thinking of Tim here, like think of who's really good at it, things um, people like. Let's Of course, and, and your good self, my, <laughs> my good friend here. Um, things like curiosity, uh, humility, and I'll combine those two, and you've got humble inquiry, mm. essentially. Sense of humour, uh, really well, important. Well, um, I don't, I've not got one of them. <laughs> None of those, though, for me, none of those will go too far without, first and foremost, warmth, I guess. Yeah. Warmth. Just the ability Care, right? and or the willingness to connect with people. You can have all the other qualities, but if you can't connect with people. Um, from the book, most people would know talk a lot about trust, right? And for, for me, the, the, those three key attributes of trust, one is, of course, integrity. It's easy to say, hard to do. Yeah. Um, it's not all about people's skills, competence. We need to be good at what we're doing. But that third one, benevolence, which is maybe what I'm thinking of with warmth, willingness to demonstrate care, so That'd be it for me. Nah, good on you, mate. Nah, I appreciate that. It's good, good words, right? So, so in you your book... You didn't memorise this. No, I didn't, mate, no. Moderately disappointed. Nah, nah, well, I have to change... So just have to change this now. In your book, you talk about build the bastards, 
right? I talk I, about what? Bill the bastard. Ah, Bill. Bill, yeah, Bill. Yeah, yeah. That's my Bill. emphasis yeah. included, right? You've got the emphasis so, on the ring silly up, so up. <laughs> Yeah, so do, do you think like guys like Bill the Bastards are sort of going to Bill. out eventually? Um, Bill, um, many of you might, if you've read the book, you might remember Bill. If not, Bill was a guy, frontline leader, uh, frontline supervisor actually, sat through the two-day Care Factor program, um, seemingly enjoyed it, came up at the end and he said, that was really good and I am one of those old school leaders. You know, I do have the big stick. And what he then added was, uh, I had his team the following day. Uh, and what he said was, you got my team the next day, you'll discover a couple of things. They don't like me, but they respect me. He was half right, eh? <laughs> they didn't like him. There wasn't much respect there. They just were really, really afraid of him. And again, there, there are bills around. Um, I, I believe they are um, becoming less frequent. I think this whole shift towards um, psychosocial risks is actually illuminating the bills in the industry. They're starting to st stand out like dogs, dogs things. I know there's a baby in the room and for some reason I can't swear now. <laughs> no, but still, it goes in there subliminal. I know that I column. <laughs> it's good, it's good discipline for me. So, yeah, I think the bills are decreasing. They're still out there. Yeah. And to be fair, I'm not having a go at Bill here. Bill doesn't know what Bill doesn't know. Yeah. But he came through the ranks in the mining industry. Frankly, that's how leaders were taught to lead in the mining industry. There's no point blaming him for that. Uh, you've mm. got to give them something different to see there's a payoff in doing things differently. It's so funny. I had a I had a conversation with a guy last week, and we sent out these surveys, like for psychosocial and psychological hazards and that thing. And this boy said to me, "Are we? Um, do our contractors get this, Steve?" And I was like, "Yeah, they, they, they might. They might." And he was like, "Oh," and I was like, "That that told me everything that I needed to know yep. about that guy." I mean, you sort of talk about not being aligned to any particular philosophy, you know, hop, yeah. safety two, safety differently. Just sort of wondering what your reasoning is around that. Is I noticed you didn't look at your notes there. Because I read it before I talked yeah, to you. Yeah, something like that's seamless, mate. I, I'm taking out my comedy stuff now. That was a seamless transition. <laughs> Thank you. Thank um, you. I do have a little bit of an issue about focusing on a model. Um, most, If you've read the book, you'd know I'm an advocate of the new view generally. Um, I don't really talk about the new view in the book, that the final chapter is about safety differently, but why I'm not um, sort, of, sort of going after one model over another. First up, there's not a shred of research anywhere that suggests one model is more effective than any other model. So I don't have research on my side there. But it goes back to my clinical days, right? So my background is clinical psychology. And I'll, I'll never forget this lecture, right? Brilliant lecture. Um, We'd already sort of done all the various readings about the, the different modalities we can use in clinical psychology. Just like safety, we've got this smorgasbord of models we can use, right? Um, Freudian stuff, behaviour-based stuff. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that was involuntary. I didn't mean to do that. Um, cognitive psychology, some of the... We've got our own acronyms, by the way. We love our acronyms. Um, EMDR, we've got um, ACT, all that stuff. Lecturer said, right, you've read up on them all. Your assignment is you go away and you come back, you tell us, debate in the class, which is your favorite model in clinical psychology. So we've gone away, we've done that, written this assignment. He said, right, all back in the room. I want you to, and I think he sussed out who was likely to be the most vocally. He put us at different tables, have your chat. Why did you choose that model over others and so forth? Within 10 minutes, 
it was like a LinkedIn thread. <laughs> you know, this is the model, and that one's got a different model. They're fighting, they're defending, and it literally became quite, quite. Biff was about to start, so he let the Biff go for a little while, and then the sage fellow that he is, he stood up and said, "Right, let's have a look." Of all the models that you're talking about here, what actually predicts successful outcomes in clinical psychology? And we went right down the list of predictors. The model, which model you use, it's way down the list to the point of insignificance. What he then added was, well, what's at the top? What's at the top of the list in terms of what predicts success? Right at the top of the list, and this has been the case ever since clinical psychology began, the therapeutic alliance. In other words, the relationship we have with whoever we're working with. That's it. Meaning, if we don't first have the therapeutic alliance with our people, it doesn't have to be a therapeutic one, but at least some sort of alliance, the model you use doesn't matter at all. It's the same in safety. The research will back this up. The biggest predictor of success is the relationship we have with our people, the trust that they have to speak up. If you've got that, we'll be eclectic. You know, in other words, use whatever model, bring in a mixture of different models. People will actually, that, that will do some good. But yeah. to just run in, the, you'd know this from your own experience, you're rolling out a new Safety Differently program. If you haven't first built the trust with the clients, they're going to just scratch their heads and how come we're being invited in now? Mm. And they might get sus on that. Trust first, then be eclectic with the models after. No. Now, having said that, uh, to me, we, we've all got our favourite models, right? Naomi no? Campbell. Right. Um, I, I tend to prefer the, the more humanistic, uh, the more humanistic clinical models. Even in safety, I tend to prefer things like safety differently. Hop, not so much on safety too. Actually, yeah. uh, seems more systems based to me. Resilience engineering, not, not a big fan. So I've got my favourites. You've got your favourites. Just know, you can use whatever you like. Uh, and use borrow take from bits them, yeah. Take bits of them. Yeah. But if you haven't got that alliance first, it doesn't really matter what model you use. So that's all I'm saying. No, I get on you. Clive, you spoke about brilliant lecturers. You obviously weren't talking about Yop or, or Guido. In the, in the <laughs> I don't think I've had the pleasure, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mate, in the book you talk about the language and how important that is, right? So I, I, need, to get, I need to make sure I get this right and all, right? So, okay. So tell me... Why do you think we should mind our words when we're talking about safety? All right, this goes right back to the beginning, my, my introduction to health and safety. So, uh, by the way, I didn't choose health and safety. Uh, it wasn't a, a career path I had lined up, frankly. I was dragged kicking and screaming into it. And I had a background in ClinSight, but also in grief counselling. And so, because of that, EAP providers used to sort of bring me in after fatalities or, or after significant incidents. And so they brought me into this very humanistic counselling work, but at the same time, these other processes had already be begun. Things like, you all know this stuff, right? Um, incident investigations, audits by safety officers, um, often looking at violators, offenders, breaches of golden rules. I remember thinking at the time, where the hell else in the organisation do we use that language? Sorry, baby. Um, but we use it in safety, right? We use it in safety. And just as a clinician, and just as a leader myself, if my goal was to, to bring my people in, bring them along on the journey, words like that, language like that, is the last thing I would be doing. Words are not neutral. 
Language is powerful. And though that sort of language really sets up what I'd refer to as a parent-child dynamic. And we talk a lot in the course about transactional analysis, looking at ego states, parent, adult, child. If you wanted to lead a group of children, just use parent language a lot. Yeah. And safety is just rife with parent language. Yeah. Yeah, For I what think, reason? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's one of those things that you, you really can make a difference, just by changing the language you use. When I, in my current role, that's something that I really try to do, is make sure that I'm using the right language sure. constantly. Moving away from the, that, the terrible C words, uh, and yeah, 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 and, and moving and moving along. Well, in the book, I talk about Simon Bowne, what he yeah, did yeah, at yeah. London Luton Airport, yeah. really give it a good crack at rolling out, maybe not safety differently, but at least new view approaches. Yeah, yeah. Before he could really begin, he recognised that he had to do something about the language. He, he stopped calling his people safety officers; <laughs> they became um, coaches. Yeah. for example. Just changing the language at least help his own safety team to, to at least break down some of those mistrust barriers with them. Yeah. It's, it's a big focus. Yeah, yeah it's all in it. Yeah, de definitely. In fact, I get a bit offended now when people call me a safety officer. I'm like, I'm not a safety officer. I'm just a guy at least have a laugh and talk about safety. Yeah, make safety fun, right? Yeah, yeah totally, totally. Hashtag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hashtag make safety fun just in case anybody's calling me. Don't forget the <laughs> one, one of the things I really love about your book, and I never really sort of understood it until you were able to illustrate it when I'd done that course for you, you talked about the Stockdale Paradox. Just wonder if you could maybe have a little bit of a chat about that and how that can be yeah. done in a, in a workplace. So I love it too. By the way, how's this for beyond the course of duty? Steve actually sat through the full two days. Yeah. Didn't leave the room once, just sat through the whole thing. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, all right, Stockdale Paradox. I'm sure most of you have heard of it. Most of you are aware of it. It came from Jim Collins' book, uh, Good to Great. And it was based on an interview Collins did with Admiral James Stockdale. Now, if you don't know the story, Admiral James Stockdale, a leader's leader, went on to lecture in leadership at Harvard. But he was in what became known as the Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam War led his men, and they were all men, in particular ways. And it was noted that his men, after the war, when they all got back to the States, did better than just about any other team. But he was being interviewed by Jim Collins, and he asked the question, I know your men did better than others, but not all of them made it. What was the difference? Who didn't make it? Now Stockdale thought for a moment, and he said, actually, that's, that's easy. The ones that didn't make it, they were the optimists. Now this is counterintuitive because what we know is generally speaking in life, optimists do better than pessimists. Not always, by the way. Don't ever do a risk assessment as an optimist, eh? <laughs> She'll be right. She'll be right. Sometimes it pays to be a pessimist. He said, no, they, they were the real and the unrealistic optimists. They'd be saying stuff like, we'll be out by Christmas. Christmas came and went. We'll be out by Easter. That's come and gone. And he said, before you knew it, it was Christmas again. They died of a broken heart. He said, the rest of us, because it got really tough, we would be focused sometimes minute by minute on, well, what, how do we get through the next torture? How do we actually find additional protein? Because they're all starving and so forth. So after that interview, Colin sort of put it together as what he called the Stockdale Paradox. Now, it's a paradox because it's two seemingly opposite ideas we hold in our mind at the same time. The paradox is this. On the one hand, we must acknowledge the most brutal facts of our current reality. 
whatever they may be. We don't have to like them, but we have to acknowledge them. And at the same time, we keep a sureness of success that we will prevail in the end. Now, all he meant by that was, we will put all our focus on just what we can control and what we can influence. Anything we have no control, no, no influence over, we let that go and put all our focus back there. Now, after Collins um, put that out in his book, many organisations started actually using it as a leadership tool to bring their people in. We do it once a month in our company. I recommend to other companies, they do it on regular into it. should never be a one-off thing. And it's brilliant because it teaches our teams a few things. Number one, it becomes, it's safe to share bad news. That's essentially psychological safety. The team learn that their voice is important. That's gonna build trust too. But they also have a say in the solutions. In other words, we now voice the brutal facts. As a leader, by the way, my role is not to argue with them, not to get defensive, because otherwise your brutal facts dry up really quickly. I just document them. After we've got them there, we move to, right, with these brutal facts, what can we control? What can we influence? We have that discussion, that becomes an action plan. So just an example. Um, you remember COVID, right? No. <laughs> no. No. When COVID hit, our phones just lit up and we had all of our clients, former and current, all their people are at home, there's all lockdowns and they're phoning up saying, what the f what do we do? And I'm thinking, I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had this before. I don't know, even know what to do with my team. But what I had done with my team was Stockdale Paradox. And in other words, almost jokingly, I said, so guys, COVID's just hit, borders are shut, we can't get on any planes, we've just lost seven months of work overnight. Any brutal facts? And yeah, of course. Then we go straight into, all right, let's go, what can we control? What can we influence? And we just, that become our action plan. But all these other companies finding us, what do we do? I said, have you asked your teams? Again, there's a chapter in the book called, your teams have the answers, do you have the questions? And using the Stockdale paradox, bring them in. All right, we're working from home. There's all these challenges, brutal facts, if you will. Let's list them, go through them. And then you follow, what can we control? What can we influence? Do that once a month. Your team learn, it's absolutely safe to share bad news. They're part of the solution. There's ownership, there's responsibility, builds trust galore. So it's just a brilliant thing. Yeah. There is a chapter on it in the book that can help you blow by blow go through it. Because there are some pitfalls, by the way. Beware. For example, you bring your team in and you say, right team, what are your brutal facts? 15 minutes later, they just sat there. What's going on? Is that there? There's no brutal facts? What's going on? What do you reckon? They don't trust you. They don't trust me. Yeah. They're frightened to death if they even share the bad news, something bad's going to happen. So you might have to put a bit of work in up front. Just let them know we're asking for a reason. The alternative, of course, is you might have to time limit it because there's so many brutal facts you cannot possibly manage them. Yeah. Um, and so it should never be um, personal attacks, never a whinge fest. You actually set some ground rules around that, all named in the book. Uh, no. But it's a brilliant technique. No, and I think you may have just answered the next question as well. Right, right? So I'm, I'm looking at this rowdy bunch here, right? And sort of thinking, they look, they look pretty time poor, all these guys. So if they had to these read, guys, yeah. So if they had to read one chapter from your book, and it's a pretty small book, so you probably should have read it multiple times. Yeah. Just wondering, what chapter would you recommend to the Yeah, let, me, let that, me pick up on your point there, Steve. <laughs> uh, these, these time poor people. It takes about an hour and a half to read the whole thing. You lazy pricks is what I'm thinking. 
Okay. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> good point. All right, guys, I'm going to pass it over to you now. So we'll have a couple of couple of minutes of questions from you, and then I'll finish off. And so, so guys, guys, are, yeah, on you go, Tony. Okay, um, good question. Yes, yeah, so many. I'm just that's just swirling around in my head right now. Um, there's some definitely not to learn from. That's that's a whole other. That's maybe a whole other conversation. Um, what about um, actually a current client? I'll go with the current client you've all heard of. Um, that's AGL. And think about what AGL are going through right now. All right, they, they're shutting plants down. They're moving through to renewables. Um, some people are just leaving the company because of the shutdowns. And they, I think it was two years ago, Daniel Moore, who was the leader at the time, he bought his, just his leadership team, a copy of the book. And, you know, he did suggest they read it as well, which is always good. Um, but also not just read it, but those little reflection questions at the end of each chapter, all their leaders actually filled those in. They then held a meeting and they brought me to and just shared all of those responses. That alone led to a little bit of a pathway forward. They gained so much traction from that that they actually started rolling the Care Factor program out right across AGL. And to be fair, they started at the board level. And um, it's one of the biggest um, take-ons and take-ups that I for Tony's question. I think the best rollout we ever did was back to Tim Darth, and that was Port of Melbourne. Um, their port expansion project, again, huge project, multi-million, multi-billion dollars. And again, Tim being the guy he is, he wrecked out a lot of tier one contractors. And in the wisdom, the management of Port of Melbourne um, had sort of instructed Tim, contractors, leave them alone, don't do certain things with that. Tim knew he had to build relationships with all the contractors and did it anyway. And they all came on board. We actually rolled the program, not just through Port of Melbourne, but through every contractor on the project. So they all had the same language, the same key concepts. They had a set of values, not Port of Melbourne's values, a project set of values that they all went back to. And that is probably the best traction. It was finished on budget, on time, with, um, if we're looking at safety numbers, they did really, really well. So that's probably the best one we've had. Yeah. Guys, in a, oh, on you go. Oh, that's what it is. Oh, right, on you go, Olsen. So, yeah, Mark Olsen, discussion tip on each night's sponsor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Mark. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sponsor, sponsor of the humble pie. Just what you are. There's a lot, a lot of practitioners here tonight, and sometimes they find it hard to take that first step. And if you could give one practical piece of advice for those people, yep. uh, what would that, like their first step in, in, in approaching senior leadership? Because quite often we're coming through the middle, we're not at the top. What would, that, what would that advice be? So for them to approach senior leadership rather or than just, their team? Or, or any, anything to, to implement that from, from C to care? Alright, so it depends which way we're going, right? But if I, if I as a leader want to influence my leaders, yep. and often that does happen, um, many safety people, for example, want to try out new ways of doing things, but the board doesn't. Uh, increasingly, to get a care factor role like that, we need board approval. And so, um, look, to be fair, boards are 
conservative by nature. All right? We've been doing BBS for 35 years, served us really well. Like we hurt shitloads of people, but, um, you know, and so, and so forth. They need the case for change. You know, they're not going to change if they... Ha and so, for me, that's um, well, uh, chapter one of the book. I, I put a case for change in chapter one. We're not doing... Don't talk about trust because it's nice or desirable. There's actually a lot of hard evidence that unless you have that trust, or at least you've overcome the mistrust of the workforce, nothing you do is going to make any difference. Now, you can't expect the board to willy-nilly approve all this new way of thinking unless, number one, you've allayed their fears that terrible things aren't going to happen, because that's what they worry about. Um, and so you, you do need to make that case for change. And so That's doable. Um, that, that's our first job, usually, before we actually begin a rollout, is actually giving a case for change to the board themselves. Yeah, you've got to do it. Yeah. No worries, Mark. Great question. Great sponsor. Yeah, uh, thanks for the pizzas, mate. Good on you. Sorry, mate. Why did you go, Tristan? Thank you. Christian, just a segue for that, it got me thinking. So, if you're looking at codes for change, um, we're trying to use that as an entry. Have you seen any, or what are your thoughts about um, compelling vision? You know, if you want somebody to, you know, maybe look at things differently, you've got to offer them a more compelling vision than the one they've got. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing about vision is fraught for me. You need to offer them a vision, what it could look like. But again, boards are conservative by nature. And almost all companies we work for have a vision already, right? All companies. Um, they have a vision and a set of values. And frankly, I wish they wouldn't. Uh, and why I say that, I'm not anti-values. Far from it, actually. But almost without exception, their overarching vision and their values are... Um, not in use, they are um, what we say they are. They look great on the website, they look great on the posters around the place, but nobody's actually operating the court. Yeah. They actually do more harm than good because they always choose values like integrity, yeah, honesty, openness. I was, I was doing a, a workshop a while ago, it wasn't the care factor. The company actually wanted me to help them to come up with a new set of values. Sure. So what that meant was I attended a lot of their senior leadership meetings, see what they're talking about a lot, and then work out what I think their values might be. And after all the meetings I attended, my thought was, all right, well, it sounds like one of your core values is shareholder return. Money. Money. And I said, we can't have that as a value. But clearly, that's what you value the most. That's what you talk about. All. Well, we can't have that as value. So instead, of course, they choose integrity. What's the point? Um, at least if you're saying shareholder value, your people know what they're signing up for. What we tend to do is create this grand vision and a beautiful set of values that nobody lives up to. Now, when we think back about trust, that is a very clear message. The workforce know what the values are sometimes, not always. Uh, if one of them is integrity, but they see or know their leadership are acting without integrity, what they know is their company doesn't operate according to values, they can't be trusted. So for me, Sure, let's have a grand vision, but it needs to be a grand vision we, are, we can live up to. Um, so I think we can help them set a great safety vision that's evidence-based, that's research-based, but you still need to have the leaders who are prepared to go along with that. Yeah. And they have their own demands. I, I don't mean to condemn executives. They have their own demands, including shareholders. This is where it all gets a bit twisted, right? Yeah. Good on you, mate. I just... Uh, on you go. Uh, sorry. Hi, Doug. Uh, question for you. Um, we are currently at 
on the of Russia to manage psychosocial hazards across, well, I can say, Queensland, in South Wales, and in South Australia. Yeah. So um, I spoke to the regulator, and they recognized the need for yeah. psychological safety to be able to have that conversation. But they don't know how to recommend it, uh, mm -hmm. and even to sort of introduce that to the to the companies they are they are, yeah. they are regulating. So what is your what do you what do you can what you can recommend? Or perhaps share some thoughts. With you? Yeah. Look, first up, it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden there's this huge shift towards psychosocial hazards and so forth. It's essentially what we talk about in the program anyway, and that is just not being a prick. All right? <laughs> Rule number one to help psychological health and safety, just don't be a prick. Um, the legislation though, you need to look at it, nobody's saying it, it's not a regulation that you have to do this and you have to tick these boxes. It's not like that, but there is definitely a shift towards that. Um, don't get stressed about it. Um, all you've got to do is, is sort of just, just read through the helpful... I mean, it's really what we do. We've had so many clients lately phone us up. Right, we've got, to, we've got to sign off on this bloody health and safety stuff that's psychosocial now. Can you do that for us? <laughs> and we don't have a program that we'll go through that helps you tick all those boxes. Nobody actually does, right? But you can at least make a start doing what we're doing. So I'd say just drop the panic. The, reg the regulators are not demanding that you tick all these boxes right now. That's not part of the deal. Have a read through that, the regulations very carefully. But you're, you're going to need to start looking at how you can start increasing that. But what does that really mean? Um, so it really means that, again, you create a climate where people feel psychologically safe to speak up to report an incident. It's not, it's, that should be the case anyway, as far as I'm concerned. If it's not, if your people don't feel safe to speak up, well, that is our responsibility to change. Um, so, uh, you know, just, just keep focusing on that. Again, as I put right through the book, focus on creating trust with your teams. That'll take care of the bulk of your psycho psychosocial needs as well. Yeah, don't overcomplicate this. It's, um, it's fairly straightforward in many ways. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. Welcome to Safety Differently Merchandise, the premium sponsor for the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Our curated lines of inspirational clothing, headwear, cups, stationery, and more at Safety Differently Merchandise is befitting of your Safety Differently journey. I am Arthur Taylor, Chief Designer. I have spent decades on Savile Row, and honored to bring my talents, for all fine purveyors and devotees of. Hop. Learning Teams. Safety Differently. Safety 2. And the New View. Please visit the store, and purchase our fine goods at safetydifferentlymerch.com.
And now, back to the show.